So this chapter um, is really exciting because this is the first um, time we really get to hear Paul speak. Um, he, uh, we're so familiar with Paul's teaching because he wrote so much of the New Testament that it's hard to believe that we get this far into Acts before he ever really says a word, like he says a couple things when he gets converted. But this is the first time we get to hear what a Pauline sermon might have sounded like, which is kind of neat. And so, um, so that happens tonight. But up to this point, um, this book has been stretching me like and it's and I think if you were to like create a subtitle for the book of Acts, it'd be something like God stretches his people or something, because it feels like in every chapter they're bumping into something new and they have no idea how to handle it and what to do. And they have to go to God in prayer and say, OK, what do we do? Like, how do we how do we handle this? I mean, it really it starts with the very first conversation. They're like, God is or Jesus. Is this now the time you're going to restore the kingdom unto Israel? And, and he has to go. That's not for you to know. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you out as witnesses. So like immediately their plans, what they thought was happening, what they thought this was going to be about. Literally a couple of verses in and God's already saying, no, scrap that different plan. You're going to go out and be witnesses to this new king. And then it just keeps going that way. Like, I don't think they expected the Holy Spirit to fall the way he did. And then, you know, 3,000 people get saved. Uh, everything from Peter getting beaten um, probably wasn't part of the plan originally. Um, we got Stephen getting stoned. The Samaritans get saved, which you got to remember just a few months before this when the Samaritans uh, weren't accepting Jesus, the disciples, like, go-to response was, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? Like, that's how they felt about the Samaritans. And now these people are becoming Christians and they weren't ready for that. And then Gentiles get saved. They actually had to have like a church council about that. They, uh, they're feeding widows and there's a dispute about the Hellenistic widows. The widows from the diaspora weren't getting the same thing. And so I don't think they were really ready to juggle, you know, some of these uh, almost racial and socioeconomic issues that they're having to contend with. And then they, they run from Paul and Paul uh, becomes a Christian and they didn't even want to let him in at first until Barnabas basically brings him in. And so now they're they're having to deal with the tension of worshiping next to somebody who was killing their people and throwing their people in prison. So it just feels like in every chapter the church is being stretched and pulled and the cool thing is they're rolling with the punches. And that's what makes this book truly amazing. Um, is there, it just seems like with every new move, when the church went up to Antioch, that became kind of the new headquarters. They, they got a Greek name that stuck, um, which I don't think they were expecting, being a mostly Jewish church at the time. And through all these things, the church just kind of rolls with it. And they, they just continually go back to the Holy Spirit in prayer and say, how do we handle this? And it seems like he's guiding them step by step. And... Wherever they go, it feels like the doors are open to everyone. It feels like that's the biggest lesson they're picking up is first it's the the diaspora widows. And no, they're just like everybody else. They get fully included. Then it's the Samaritans. Nope, they're just like everybody else. Then it's Gentiles. And then it's this guy that was killing them. And through all of this stuff, it feels like the door stays open and they just keep accepting more people, which gets interesting in our story tonight because uh, tonight Paul goes on the road and, and the, some of the things he does um, are interesting the way the book's been going. So this is his first missionary journey. And uh, we talked last week about how they got sent, how God kind of spoke to the church and the church 
sent them. It wasn't them, you know, having this big, you know, we're, uh, we're going, we've got a new vision, a new mission, blah, blah, blah. He had got actually spoke to the church and said, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas for this work that I have for them. And so they're taking off. And what I love about this is there's so many real life details that sometimes we miss um, that kind of make the story real. Um, and I'm going to pull a few of those out. Like Saul's name change. Um, do you notice how quick that happened? That uh, Paul or Saul, who's also called Paul, so he gets a name change here. It never really explains why. Um, but the word Saul, Saul is a Hebrew name. We had a king that was named Saul, and it's a pretty popular Hebrew name. But the word Salos, which is as close as you can get in Greek, means um, it's an adjective that means effeminate. And, uh, and so probably would have been something like sissy, like if something they would use to describe someone who's effeminate. And so most likely Paul just changed his name so it wouldn't be a stumbling block. Like it wouldn't be a weird, he didn't want his name to become the issue. And so he grabs one that's probably close, I'm assuming. Um, and we see this happen quite a bit in the, uh, in the change. So I, I just love that, um, that Luke includes that, that he, that he got a name change. Um, and he doesn't really explain why, but most likely it was because of the meaning of his name. Fun little details that make it feel real. Um, another one uh, is here. It says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love this because... Uh, this is what happens most of the time. We have no idea really what Paul's intent was. He does give us, for a couple of his other missionary journeys, he kind of gives us his intent. He was, one of them was a fundraising trip. The church in Jerusalem was doing so poorly that he went to kind of raise money from all the churches he had planted. But it, his first missionary journey, it seems like he moves because he has to. <laughs> like every time he gets into a city, persecution starts up and they basically chase him out. And that's how he moves to the next city. And it almost seems like that's how the timing works. That's how Paul is always, he doesn't necessarily move. He is moved um, from city to city. And if you're telling a story and you're trying to make it like a fairy tale or, or, a, or like a really compelling story and you're making it up, you don't, you make your main character considerably more in control than Paul usually is like you make him he's got this master plan and he works it and blah blah blah. you don't get that with Paul usually Luke includes the details like Paul there's a couple times he runs you know there's a couple times that he's stoned and then they pick him back up and take him in and one time he's preaching and somebody falls out of a window and they have to go and pray for the guy and and he gets back up like just all these details that make this real that we don't want to miss um and then there's this one. Uh, and at the end of last week's passage, it tells us that Mark went with him. said, uh, when they arrived at Salamis, Salamis, I don't know. Um, they proclaimed the word of the Lord to the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And then this week, he leaves after the very first stop. Now, Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to per, uh, Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We find out later that this was not a peaceful parting that uh, basically John couldn't handle the heat at this point. He didn't like 
the probably the sleeping arrangements and what traveling on the road back then would have been like. And so he makes it through one stop and goes home. And I love that Luke tells us that. I love that Luke tells us not everybody, you know, had the gumption to stick. And he didn't say, you know, we don't have to talk about John. That was kind of an embarrassing situation. We'll leave that out of the story. He just leaves it all in there, all the yuck and everything. Um, and later, Barnabas and Paul actually uh, separate over this because John wants to give give it another shot. He wants to go on another missionary journey. And Paul's like, no, he didn't stick with us the first time. And Barnabas stuck to his guns. was like, well, I really want to take John. And Paul wouldn't do it. And they wound up actually parting ways. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John. And they went on two different journeys. Um, I love that we get these kind of not so shiny details. Um, whoops. And the reason these are important to me and the reason I like to pull these out and talk about them is because this reminds us that these are just people. Like this isn't, this isn't a, a, like I say, a hero story or a fairy tale. This is just ordinary people who get tired and beat up and who give up sometimes and go home and people who um, love to feel like they're in control, but in all honesty, half the time they're just running for their lives. And so this is a story about people like us. And that's, that's why I think Luke's details are important to us is because um, our story would sound a lot like that if we were honest with it. And there'd be times where we were like, I knew I was supposed to be going to church, but I didn't, and I didn't want to, and blah, blah, blah. And if we were writing the book of Acts, we'd have to include those. And, and those would be the ones that would make it real. Like a lot of times when I read, I've been struggling because I'll, I'll, um, I'll read some of these you know, books by other you know, church planters and stuff, and they, they always make it sound so shiny. You know what I mean? Like, like and everything, and then God just parted the sea, and we just walked through it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm sure if they were living it, like one of my favorite things about um, our story is when, uh, when we met with the Methodist church to see if they would let us use this building, um, they, uh, we left, they voted. He called me later and said it was the only unanimous vote um, to re- at record that they've ever had on anything in this church. They vote about everything. It's a congregationally governed church, and they um, said so they've never had a unanimous vote except that one. Like, and they voted, yeah, we'll definitely let them use our building. And if I put that in a book in chapter two, that would sound amazing. Like, and you could make it sound to us. It was like, sweet, we have a place to do this. Like, and then we were on to the next thing. You know, now what's our next hurdle? And then what's our next hurdle? And so, I love that when Luke tells his story. He includes the yuck because it's a real story and it's just a story about real people walking with God. And the the last one, actually, the last detail kind of leads into our next point. It says, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch and uh, Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law, the prophets and the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and monitoring with his hands, he said, men of Israel uh, and you who fear God, listen. And this uh, kind of leads into his message, which he gives. And the cool thing is, Paul, we got to remember, and this is the, the fun thing about the way they tell us, is Paul is a diaspora Jew. He's, so even, even though I'm sure he spent quite a bit of time um, in Jerusalem, he grew up in Tarsus. That's kind of outside the Jewish hub. So he grew up. Uh, and, and later we find out he's a Roman citizen. He actually calls on his uh, Roman citizenship to keep from being killed once. Um, but this is Paul's home turf now. He's been 
we've seen him function in kind of down in Jerusalem and they chased him out of the city and he had to escape over the wall and stuff. But this is not far from Paul's home. So he would have been very, very familiar with kind of the diaspora synagogue. So these synagogues that would be in towns, non-Jewish towns out in the Roman Empire. And they would have a different flavor because they wouldn't have the temple politics. They didn't have a temple there, just a, just like a little house of teaching where they would go and teach uh, and learn. And Paul would have, that's how he would have grown up. So we're seeing Paul kind of on his home turf here. And I love that he goes and he knows how to sit and wait and kind of do the wait for the point. And he probably knew it was coming. He probably knew the rhythm and there's going to come a point where they're going to invite people to share. And that's when I'll give my message. He didn't just come in and start preaching. He didn't interrupt. Like he just kind of goes with the flow of their service because this is his kind of service now. This is, this is how he functions. Um, and he gives his first message. And this message is, is kind of telling because he goes, and we've seen this before with Peter, he goes back in the history and he goes all the way back again um, and he tells the Jewish story all the way up to Jesus. And this is important because Jesus doesn't exist outside of the narrative, if that makes sense. Like he's, we can't just take Jesus and make him a spiritual figure that stands all by himself and that just kind of, and, and he just kind of is. He, he's part of a bigger story. Jesus, and he really is the story. He's the story that's been, that was being told all along, but he, he is who he is because of the narrative and because of the story. Um, that's what defines him as Messiah. It's what creates the, the narrative of sin. If we don't understand the whole story, salvation doesn't mean anything. Like salvation's meaningless if we don't have the rest of the story. And so every time Paul preaches, I love that he goes back and pulls the whole story in it. It stands as a full narrative that's really important. And so especially to the Jewish culture. Um, And that leads him to kind of his main point, which happens here. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. So this is kind of at the end of his long history. He says that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so this is when he gets to his main point, which is forgiveness. And it's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp how big this would have been to the Jews. Because their entire kind of understanding of the... uh, of the spiritual life was trying to figure out what sin was and how to handle it. And so it was their dialogue. And so they would have conversations where somebody would be like, um, you know, well, would it be sin if somebody did this? Blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, ah, but what if he did it for this reason? Ah, that's a good point. But now what if he did it for this reason and it had this output? This would have been a normal Jewish conversation. And so what exactly is sin and exactly how do you deal with it? was what it meant to be a Jew, to have those conversations. And here comes Paul saying, it's done. It's all done. It's all forgiven. It's forgiven. No, like, I don't, they wouldn't have known what to talk about. And, they would, you know, and for him to go, when you believe in Jesus, all of that is done. All of that, all of that law of Moses is taken care of. He completed all of it. And, like, and there, you know, I think we've, we've talked about how the, the Jews have 600... 14, I think it is, um, commands. And part of the definition of uh, a rabbi, they have three, three main functions. One is to um, 
to raise other rabbis. And so they're, they always have disciples and they're bringing up new rabbis. Um, one is to, hmm, I can't remember the, the middle one, but the last one is what they call building a fence around the Torah is the way they say it. So their job is to look at the commands and say, okay, so we know that that's too far. You've broken the Torah. Um, so we create commands that won't let you get too close to that. So if, if you obey our rabbinical commands, you don't even have to worry about the Torah because it'll be hidden so far inside there that you won't have to worry about breaking one of the actual Decalogue. And so they have things like, you know, there's a command that you can't boil a calf in its mother's milk. You know, they would boil meat. Um, and it's probably a symbolic thing about, you know, parental and motherly love, you know, that is just rude. Um, that if you're going to boil meat to use its mom's milk to do it. But they came up with this whole rule for uh, cheese and meat at the same time. So if you have a kosher, a kosher kitchen, you're not, you have two sets of dishes. You can't cook anything. You can't cook meat in anything that you cook dairy in. Because, and you can't eat them at the same time because you might mix the calf and his mother's milk in your stomach. And none of that is in the scripture. But it's part of kosher, and it's because they're trying to build a fence around this one command that they don't want to break, this boiling a calf in its mother's milk. And so they create all of these rules by which you should be protected from breaking the one that matters. And so this is what they did. This was what a rabbi saw his job to be, was to spend all day going, how do we, how do we keep people from sinning? And what exactly would be sin? And when is it sin and when is it not sin? And, and all of these questions. And here comes Paul. And the main point of his message is that conversation's done. We're done with that conversation. Jesus took care of that. that we're, it's all finished. And so that's how revolutionary this would have been. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But it, it literally kind of undoes. It would be like... Um, if we decided music was, we don't need music anymore. Like, like that's done. The music thing is over. And so you come to church and go, so what do we do for the first 20 minutes? Like, we just, do we just start, like, and literally we don't, we wouldn't know how to function. That's what they're doing with Paul. They're like, so what do we talk about? If it's, if it's over, what do we talk about? So that's what's new here. And it also creates um, kind of the tension for the rest of Paul's life, honestly, is this concept. And, and, and this, introduces our tension and this may be the tension and it's just grace grace is a tension because the definition of grace is unmerited favor it's favor you don't deserve and so you only get grace when you don't deserve it the second and Paul even says the second you work for it that's no longer grace it's payment that's not grace if you're if you earn grace or you earn favor it's not grace. In order to be grace, it has to be, it has to be completely undeserved. And that creates a tension in us because we want to go, well, yeah, but, but, like grace, but, like that's the absolute tension because we all do that. We go, well, yeah, it's about grace, but you can't just do whatever you want, right? Is anybody else grace, but? I think all of us grace, but. That's like, yeah, we all do that. Like, and I, and it's hard because you, it's unnatural. And so this becomes Paul's life. There were people who, they were called Judaizers, um, and we typically play them off as bad guys. 
Because Paul would come in and he would preach grace to a place. And he would tell them, through Jesus Christ, sin is forgiven. It's forgiven. You believe in Jesus and it's forgiven. And the Judaizers would come in and go, but, <laughs> hold on. Like, grace, but. And they would say, these rules are still there for a reason. And, and, and we typically like to make them the bad guys, but they're just like us. Every single one of us do it. We all go, I understand that it's about Jesus. I understand it's not about that anymore. But that doesn't mean, you know, and we immediately go in, the Judaizer in us immediately goes, but there's, there's still rules, right? We still have rules. And so we live in that tension. And this is going to define the entire rest of Paul's work and life. And, and he's, and by Acts 15, we, there's a huge council over what does this look like? Like, what is a life where that stuff supposedly doesn't matter look like? And how do you do it? And, and do these new Gentiles that get saved, what does that mean to them? Because they didn't even know about the laws, about the rules. And now we can't just say there's no rules. And so this tension becomes Paul's ministry. And really, if you, if you read any of his work outside of that knowledge that, that he was constantly wrestling with grace but, and that, that uh, then you really don't get his writing because it's, it's just dripping um, from every verse. And this is his struggle. And this is what everybody, and it's still going on today. We still do it. Every single one of us still does it. We all still have... A Paul and a Judaizer in our own mind. And, and we all, we want to embrace grace and we love it and we think it's, it's beautiful. Um, and then at the same time, we're like, but that doesn't mean you can't, you guys can do anything, you know? And so we, we struggle with that. And I'm not even going to address what it should look like. I'm just going to say that tension is there and we all have to, we all have to deal with it. But the big thing that happens in this passage and the thing that we want to talk about most is Paul acts like a jerk twice in this passage, which is really interesting. The first time is with this, uh, with this false prophet where he's talking to the proconsul and the false prophet is, is, uh, is trying to twist, the, twist things up and Paul like curses him. He's like, you're not going to see the sun anymore. And a mist comes down, the guy goes blind, um, which is pretty heavy. And then by the end of the thing, um, he uses some words. I think I put them up. Maybe. Nope. Um, by the end of the thing, he's like, it was right that we would come to you first, but you've proven yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And he starts this, and this kind of becomes his pattern. He always goes to the synagogue first, and if the Jews reject him, then he turns and goes to the Gentiles and it's, and he kind of always follows this pattern. And he says in this one that this is what God has called him to, to be a light into the Gentiles. Um, and so, but he, he kind of shuts the door on the Jews. He's kind of like, you know what? I gave you a chance and you wouldn't hear it. I'm turning to the Gentiles and he turns away. And this is unique because in this book, nobody has shut the door on anyone yet. Like they've been open to Samaritans and to Gentiles and, you know, to, persecutors like they've allowed everybody in and now now we've got this kind of harsh treatment where Paul curses one guy and kind of shuts the gospel door on another group of people which begs uh, the question why why has up to now 
the, the, the message seems to be how wide can you get the doors? Like how far can you open things up to people? Like just how inviting can you get? Seems to be the message up to this point. And for the first time, we're starting to see a line get drawn in the sand, like this far and no farther. And, and it leaves us with the question of why. But one thing I do want to grab um, out of these Jews as they turn away, and this is something that just jumped out of me. It didn't really fit, but I didn't feel like we could skip over it. This is the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds and were filled with jealousy, they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And this is huge. So the Jews, because up to now, the Jews had been receptive. They had been receiving what Paul said. They even begged him to come back the next week and everything was going good. He comes back the next week and Gentiles and everybody show up. There's this huge thing. And and when the Jews saw that the other side was there, the other side, um, the other group of people, they respond out of jealousy. This had nothing to do with Paul's message. It was simply, if they accept it, then we have to reject it. Like, and it was, it was a culture war. And this is something that we have, as Christians really have to be careful of because as humans, we love these situations. We love us and them. It's what we do. We do us and them. And the bummer is, as Christians, we're not really us or them. Like, we don't really fit into some of the clean groups that happen. And so a lot of times... When we're on this side, we're like, yes, I embrace this, this, and this. And over there, I embrace this, this, and this. And we've got to be real careful we don't ever say, no, I can't believe in that because that side believes in that. Because that's not the Christian way. And that's what the Jews do here. They're not rejecting Paul's message. That's what's a bummer for them, is they're not really having a problem with Paul's message. They're having a problem with the fact that Paul's message includes those people over there. And that's scary. <laughs> And in a world where we have, and especially right now, our country is so divided and torn apart, we've got to be real careful that we don't embrace everything one side says just because it's on a side. Yeah, there's some things on this side that are right, and, and we stand for them, and they're good. And there are some things on this side that are right, and we stand for them, and we're good. As Christians, we've got to make sure where our allegiance is, which is always Christ. It's always Christ. Because I feel like in this story... You could take this and put it smack dab in the middle of America today. Just, well, no, I, I'm against that because that's what that side believes. We're like, but it's in the Bible. You're like, well, yeah, but that's what those nutcases over there believe. And so we, we divide over, who's, what, over the team rather than the content. And we have to be careful we don't do that. So here's a couple things I want to pull out because this is, I think, why uh, Paul closes the door twice. Happens the first time. Elmaeus, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then with the Jews, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered, hearing the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. In both situations, the prime offense, the big thing that seems to set Paul off, is both people tried to stop the word from going forth. And that seems to be the only dividing line. That seems to be when Paul like, said, no, that's too far. That's too far. And this is, this is what I think is important to us. The going forth of the word. So how do we respond to this? What's this mean to us? And I think this is huge to us as a church because I think we, 
we're trying to find our ethos and we're trying to find what it would feel like to be com- completely inviting and open and loving. And yet every single one of us has that tension of, yeah, but what if, what if somebody, you know, do we not say anything? Do we, like, what if somebody came in and like, where do we draw the line? Like what kind of, how do you invite everybody? And then somebody comes in and we all kind of wrestle with this. And I feel like this passage is, is, this is the line you have to create. Is if someone comes in here and they're willing to sit under the teaching of the scripture and they're willing to be, to, to worship and to, um, and to be part of the community, then, then they belong here. They absolutely belong here. And if someone comes in and, and, and something they're doing is, is preventing the word from going forth, they're not willing to sit under the teaching, they're not willing to, um, to be truly part of the community, then we help them find another place they might fit better. And it's that simple. And the bummer is, I don't even know what that means. I've never seen that before. Um, the bummer is that means there could be two different people come that look identical and one belongs here and one doesn't. Like if, if but if somebody is willing to be taught, how can we turn them away? Whatever they look like, whatever they act like, whatever is going on in their world, whether their sin looks like our sin or not, because our sins are okay. They're the, ours are, we're comfortable with ours. Like those, they're like our pets. We just, yeah, this is, I know he's ugly, but I love him. Like, but someone comes in and their sin looks different and we don't like the different sin and so it makes us uncomfortable. But if they're willing to be a part and they're willing to sit under the teaching of the word of God, of course they belong here. Of course they do. And if someone comes in and they have a political agenda, they're like, you know, they're, they're here and they want to be disruptive and they just, they, then, then yeah, then we're like, you know what? The word has to go forth. We have to have rightly ordered worship and the proclamation of the word. We gather around a common teaching and a common table. That's, that's, that's what we do. And if someone wants to interfere with that, yeah, then they probably don't belong here. And we see Paul draw that line. Like, like they're, the theme of the book has been to let everybody come. And then all of a sudden it's like, but the word of God has to go forth. That's the big thing. The word of God has to go forth.